Welcome. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is one of these uh, tipping points in the gospel narrative where we see some, a major turning point in the story of the gospel moving forward. So we see something big happen in Acts 15, and what that was was we saw conflict resolution happen. We saw the first council take place in Jerusalem where representatives from the two different camps and the apostles gather around this table to, to settle a theological and cultural debate. So the conflict was cultural in that we saw, we're seeing Gentiles, people who aren't of the Jewish faith, come to know Christ, and they have practices and ways of doing life and even temple worship practices that are just not reflective of the character of God and definitely not reflective of the law of Moses. And on the other camp, you have the Jews who grew up under the law of Moses and and deifying the law, actually, seeing that the law and obedience to the law is what saves you. And so what's happening is, is these people are, are functioning out of more of an ignorant camp, and these people are functioning out of more of an overeducated camp where they've deified things that shouldn't be deified, and these two things are on a collision course. And the apostles are in the center saying, listen, we've got to provide peace to this, and we have to provide a clear resolution and a pathway forward so that we don't get trapped in the weeds on this stuff for a long, long time. And that was essentially... Uh, what took me 45 minutes to say last week. Wow. So, uh, so there's a whole lot to Acts 15, and, uh, and, it, and, and I, I'm fascinated by Luke's writing style because he can take Acts 15, for instance. Now, he didn't write this in chapter and verse. We did that for our convenience as, we, as, the, as the Word of God got mass-produced. It just helps us find things. But obviously, Luke didn't write his, his, his record or the account of what was happening in chapter and verse form. But there are sections of this writing that he slows down and gives us so much information about what's happening in a very short period of time. And then there are other parts, like today's passage, where there's, there's a whole lot that happens and not a whole lot of detail. And so I find his writing style fascinating of what he chooses to give more detail to and what he doesn't. And that tells me something about God's word, just a little side note, that if what we're reading has a lot of detail to it and and takes a long time to say, we should tune into what that's saying. And if something doesn't have a lot of detail to it, we shouldn't get trapped in the weeds on that too long. We shouldn't spend two years preaching through the book of Revelation trying to figure out whether the flames that come out of the dragon's mouth are tomahawk missiles or not. We're two conspiracy theorists. We try to make the Word of God say stuff that it doesn't say. And, and then we make ourselves feel better because we've spent time in the Word, but we haven't actually spent time in the Word uh, in practical application. We haven't spent time in the Word to, to restore us, to lead us, to take us somewhere, to, to flush out sin, to show us more to the character of God, to bring us closer to the person of Jesus. So when we see someone like Luke give us details like he does in Acts 15. We should pay attention to that. We should pay attention to the details. And it's not bad to ask questions like, oh, I wonder why they just skipped right over that. That's fine. But it's also fine to say, we don't know. We don't know. Well, who was that person they referred to? I don't know. We study it. We can't find an answer. Moving on, right? So we don't want to get trapped in the weeds on stuff uh, and, and not let the transformative work of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit do its work in us because we're distracted by doing something we're claiming is good but not what it could be. Does that make sense what I'm trying to say? Okay, good. So uh, this week what we're going to see is we're going to see as we look forward how did the gospel advance after these resolutions were made in Jerusalem? So, so what happened was, just as a quick refresher, there were, there were those claims that, listen, these, these people who grew up that weren't Jewish, they're not obeying the law. They're still practicing some of their pagan temple worship practices. They're still, they're still uh, doing things that, that just are so antithesis of the law. So they, they cannot be redeemed. And, then, and that camp also, by the way, doesn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And those that do are still struggling with obedience and adherence to the law. The Gentiles are saying that we've heard of this Jesus for the first time. It's changed our lives. Yeah, we want Jesus. We want more of Jesus. 
And the discipleship process in their life is, is letting them know there are certain practices of your lifestyle that don't reflect the heart of God and need to be flushed out. So the Council of Jerusalem met to say, we've got to figure out a decision here that meets the needs of the people through the lens of God's redeeming grace. And in the meantime, whatever we decide around this council table, if they sat at a table, needs to advance the gospel, not slow it down. And so that was a weighty decision that they had to make. So Acts 15 records that interaction. And at the end of it, what we see is that they said that it's not Jesus and adherence to the law that equals salvation. It's Jesus and nothing that equals salvation. Jesus is sufficient in and of himself. The law is there to actually reveal our need for Jesus, not to make us be acceptable to him. So the law exists so that we see our brokenness because the more we try to obey the law, the more we'll probably be prone to break it. We are incapable of obeying the law fully and completely and perfectly, so that reveals to us that we need a Savior, we need redeemed. And that was really the true purpose of the law, is to reveal our brokenness. So when Jesus comes in and is the ultimate fix to our brokenness, it magnifies Him as Savior Because if we're trying hard to obey the law and failing at that consistently, we see a perfect all-atoning sacrifice come in that fixes the problem on our behalf. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay. So what happened is that you have a camp over here that says we're God's chosen people. They've always been outcasts. They've always been the others, right? Any lost fans out there, the others on the other side of They've always been the others. They've always been the ones that, that, that whenever we were commanded to do something or not do something, they weren't a part of that. But if you go back to Old Testament prophecy, like we saw a few weeks ago, even in Isaiah, we have a prophecy that says that God has sent him to be the voice of God and the voice of peace and grace to the Gentiles. This shouldn't have caught anybody by surprise that the Gentiles were grafted into the promises of God, but it has. It's caught them by surprise. And now as Gentiles in the droves of thousands upon thousands are coming to know Christ and the church is starting to get planted and expanded and exploding through Asia Minor, that it's, it's waking people up to the reality. Wait a second. This is, those who wanted to control it are saying it's getting out of hand. We've got to circle this thing back up because we've got to be able to control it. And those who are just in the movement saying, yeah, please give me more of Jesus, need to know why their lives need to reflect Jesus, meaning certain sin things need to be flushed out. So the Gentiles need discipled, the Jews need to get over themselves, and the apostles need to make a decision. And so the apostles make the decision. And they say that it's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. That we're not going to require or teach or preach that people need to obey every part of the law and or get circumcised and, and that's the real linchpin is the circumcision, is that the law of Moses commands that you should be circumcised if you are a Jew. So why aren't all these Gentiles getting circumcised? That's what brought this, this argument to the forefront. And at the end of it, that was the conclusion. But the other part of the conclusion that we tend to forget because we want to paint the Jews as the bad guys in this whole story. What we tend to forget is that James, the leader of the council, the brother of Jesus, stands and makes the the proclamation at the end that says, listen, that's what we're going to do. He says what he says to the Jewish people. But he also looks to the Gentile side and he says, but guys, listen, the strangulation of animals in the temple and the temple prostitution and the temple worship and the God worship, the paganism, that is not reflective of the character of God. And I know that you're going to need grace and, and peace as you flush that stuff out of your life, but you need to know that it doesn't reflect God and it's causing a stumbling block to your Jewish brothers and sisters who are trying to figure out how to make peace with you. It's causing a stumbling block. So don't hold too tightly to your traditions just like they do and let's all figure out how to be more like Jesus. That was James' message for the Jerusalem Council. So what we see today is what the, as Paul leaves, but Paul comes into this conversation, by the way, loaded for bear, man. He is hot. And, and I, I, I can't figure out why Luke worded it this way, but it says there was no small amount of frustration is what Paul says uh, about Paul's, I mean, is what Luke says about Paul's demeanor. There was no small amount of frustration. 
Like, do you ever get yelled at by your dad and your mom says, how was that? Well, there was no small amount of frustration, mother. Like, dude, he was mad, right? So that's, that's sort of where we get today. What we see is Paul coming out of that council excited about the decisions that were made, completely on board with what's happening, and he's just going to continue what God's called him to do. If you want to turn there, we're going to be in Acts 16. It's on page 639. If you're using the Bible in front of you, maybe you're already there. Uh, as I was prepping this week, I heard a story about a, uh, it was, it was a long time ago, but there was some towns in the West that were being ravaged by wolves. They, they were killing uh, livestock and fields, and, and, uh, and so the local governments all got together, and they, they offered $500 per wolf pelt that you could bring in to try to eradicate some of the wolf problems. So this father and son, they go out in the woods, and they're hunting for wolves because they want to try to make some extra money for their family. And they're, they're out there for a week and a half. They don't even see a wolf. They see, they see signs of wolves, but they don't see any wolves. And they lay down for camp one night, and the son has to go relieve himself. He gets out of the tent. He goes over, and as he goes over there, he notices that their whole encampment is surrounded by wolves. And the light flickering from his fire, he sees their eyes in the background. And there he's sur- surrounded by wolves. And he does whatever he can do. He yells for his dad. He says, Dad, wake up. We're going to be rich. (laughs) And the thing I found funny about that is because his perspective wasn't, I'm going to get mauled by wolves. His perspective was, look at all these wolves that are going to make us some money whenever we kill them and take their pelts in. And the thing that I found uh, connected to this is, That's Paul's perspective as he goes into all of these towns and villages with the gospel, is he doesn't see the attack coming. He doesn't go in with fear thinking, oh no, how, how, what's the angle here? How can I get in uh, without, without anybody knowing that I'm here? How can I say this in a way that doesn't offend people? Or uh, how, can I, how can I say this gently? Or no, Paul just knows what God has called him to do, knows what the gospel has done in his life. And so he goes in to these towns and villages and cities, major municipalities, and just preaches the gospel. And he doesn't go in, preach the gospel, and then leave under cover of night on his private jet. He goes in, he makes a living there, he sells tents, he, he lives with these people. He makes his dwelling with them. He's following in the footsteps of Jesus, who uh, Eugene Peterson in the message says that the word became flesh, or the, the word Jesus, moved into the neighborhood. Jesus came down from heaven and put skin on and moved into the neighborhood, is how Eugene Peterson says of Jesus in John 1. You maybe heard it this way, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So all Paul is doing is the same thing. He's incarnationally taking the gospel to where God has called him to take it without fear Every place we've seen Paul go, almost every place, we've seen him get persecuted of some kind. So you would think that if he gave over to that fear, he would, that would be part of his calculation. But he has the attitude of this little boy where he sees all the wolves and he says, Dad, come out, we're going to be rich. He says, come on, we got, look at the fertile land for the gospel here. Let's take it. Let's go. Now, what we see in chapter 16 is a lot. There's a lot of, 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 I don't want to say little things, but the reason I would say that word little, because if we're going, to, we're going to section it up here, we're just going to stop. We're going to read a section, stop and see what happens. We're going to read a section, stop and see what happens. At the end, we're going to bring it all together, okay? So track along with me. I don't have slides for you this week. That was a one-time only thing, folks, okay? Uh, uh, follow along with me. We're going to start at uh, verse 1 in chapter 16. We're going to read through the first, first five verses. Now, this is after they leave. Paul and Barnabas uh, separate at the end of 15 over a disagreement. And, uh, and it's, not a, it's not a he said, she said thing. It's not, a, it's not a, a sharp or huge dispute where they don't like each other anymore. It's, the, it's a philosophical ministry split where they, they go different directions. And Barnabas takes John Mark, John, who they also call Mark. Later on, Luke just starts calling him John Mark, which is less confusing for us. 
and they go and plant churches and, and teach people, and Paul leaves with Silas, and they go and do the same thing. So Paul leaves the council area with Silas, and this is where we get in chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. There's a couple things we need to look at here. Paul goes, he's traveling, runs into this young man. By the way, right around this time in Timothy's life, he's probably about 18 years old. So Timothy is about an 18-year-old, and he is already well-spoken of, and Paul takes him under his wing. If you fast-forward to the letters of First and Second Timothy, you see Paul, actually, he's, he's, he interacts with Timothy and says, my son, he, he's, he's, Timothy has become very dear to him, and this is where he meets him. It could be taken as uh, inconsistent with the decisions. If you notice towards the end of that, what's their purpose in being in in Derby and Lystra and Iconium? What's their purpose? It's to go to the churches. They're circling back to communities and they're letting them know the decision that was made by the Jerusalem council. These questions have been badgering at the local churches for a long time and they're waiting for word back on what's the final say on this. So Paul and Silas are going into these places, and they're, they're on their way, in verse 4, through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And the outcome of that, by the way, is that the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Let me just add a caveat that if our policies and our decisions as local churches don't equal strengthening of the faith and increasing the gospel and people coming to know Christ then maybe we should rethink our policies. Maybe we should rethink the things we say are important to us. Maybe we should rethink our governance. Because if we're not seeing people strengthened in the faith, and we're not seeing that the gospel is growing, and, people, and, the, and the church is increasing daily, not just more people gathering into a building, but actually being disciples of Jesus out in the community, we might want to reconsider what our policies and structures look like. So these people are waiting for leadership to tell them what the decision is. Leadership comes back and says, this is, we had our board meeting. We met around the table. We made this decision. This is the decision that has been made. This is how the churches should function. And the churches say, got it. And they start functioning that way. And in them functioning that way, they are strengthened in their faith and the gospel continues to increase. I'd say that's a pretty good policy. I'd say it's a pretty good board decision. If you've been attached to a local church for more than 35 seconds, you can probably think of the opposite being true many, many times, though. The other thing that I think we need to look at is in this section, we see that Timothy was raised by a Jewish woman, and we know later that his grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice, raised him, and he has a Greek father. We don't know much about his father. We don't know where he's at. We don't know if he lives with them. We don't know anything other than he has a Greek father. And we know that he was raised by Jewish believers, and so he's ministering in and around Jews. And so what does Paul do? As he's delivering the message that says that that Gentile believers who come to know Christ do not need to get circumcised. That's the decision that he's coming to deliver. And now he comes into his contact with this young leader, Timothy, 18 years old. And the first thing that he makes this 18-year-old do is get circumcised. Doesn't that sound incongruent with what we just heard last week? Doesn't that sound inconsistent? It's a mystery, right? Well, there's a simple answer. Do you remember last week when we hear James talk to the Gentiles and say that you shouldn't strangle your animals before sacrifice? And the reason they strangle their animals before sacrifice is because they could sacrifice the animal preserve the blood, and therefore the meat wouldn't be ruined and they could sell it in the marketplace. It was like a win-win for them. So, but that, didn't, that wasn't a true sacrifice. And they were sacrificing to pagan gods. So there were a lot of things that needed to change. 
But James tells them, you should stop doing that practice. That should stop because that practice in and of itself, for a lot of reasons, but one of the main ones that James gives is it is a stumbling block and a hindrance to the gospel moving forward with your Jewish brothers. So that needs to stop. And there, there's, no, there's no like over-theologizing the decision by James, although a major case could be made. He's saying that it's, it slows down the gospel and it's a hindrance to your brothers. So for no other reason right now in this spot, in this moment, don't do it. What Paul is doing with Timothy is it says here, it gives us our answer. This isn't one that we should have to dig in too long. It says about Timothy that he was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, which means his father made the decision whenever he was born of whether he was going to be raised, circumcised, or uncircumcised. You only get circumcised if you're a Jew. This Greek father said, my son's not a Jew. He's not getting circumcised. So he was never circumcised. So he's well spoken of by the brothers, the people who are following Jesus at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to come with him. And so he took him and circumcised him. That's a good plan for discipleship, by the way. Like if I ever want to mentor somebody, be like, I want you to follow me in the pastorate. Let's go to my office and I'll circumcise you. Like, I'm glad we don't, I'm glad we don't do that practice anymore. I'm glad that I don't have to be just like Paul in this regard. Right? So, so it seems incongruent, but follow, follow along with me. It says that he took him and circumcised him. Why? Because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so these Jews have a problem. They're, they're struggling. They're struggling with the knowledge that this Timothy is, is uh, he's a dual citizen here. Is he a Jew or is he a Gentile? He lives like he's a Jew, but he hasn't done all the Jewish things, and it's a stumbling block. And what Paul's saying is, listen... Let's not make this a bigger issue than it needs to be. This is a real stumbling block to the gospel moving forward. This could be a real stumbling block for the gospel moving forward with your Jewish brothers. So if you really want to follow me, if you really want to come with me, then I think this should be something we shouldn't have to turn into a fight. Let's not make this a hill worth dying on. And so Timothy agrees and he gets circumcised at 18 years old. I, I, I'm glad that they do circumcisions at an age where you don't remember the moment. So, so Timothy doing this at 18, it was no small thing. But he was willing to do it because he did not want to be used as a hindrance to slowing down the gospel. Does that make sense? It might not make complete logical sense to us. Like you, you might be sitting here saying, well, why didn't Timothy just have the posture that says deal with it? <laughs> But why make, why make a hill worth dying on something that doesn't need to be a hill worth dying on? Why make something a fight that doesn't need to be a fight? Why, when Timothy goes into the next city or the next town with Paul, should instead of taking the gospel, he spend the next two days that he's there with these people explaining to them why he never got circumcised? So next time they go into a village and these staunch Jews who are still holding on to the law come up to say, yeah, well, you've never even been circumcised. And say, well, I have. Let's talk about something else. And the argument goes away. It doesn't slow down the gospel anymore. It's no longer a hindrance. And that's what's happening in this first part. But know that that's the first thing we see happening here. As he comes into this town and he meets Timothy, he, he, he's obviously heard of Timothy. He meets him. And then he says, Timothy, I want you to come with me. I want, you to, I want to show you how to do this. And Timothy does. So that ends that first section. And then we get into verse uh, 6. Follow along with me here. And they went through the region of, of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. We don't really know what that means and how that plays out. This is one of those moments where Luke doesn't give us a ton of details. But we know that somewhere along the line, Paul and Silas felt the Holy Spirit tell them that it's not a good idea, that I don't want you to take the gospel any further in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here's what I want us to picture. 
I think whenever we see Paul's missionary journey, it might even be in your Bible on the back, Paul's missionary journeys, and they have like the first one in a red arrow, the second one a green arrow, the third one in a purple arrow or whatever, right? And you see this direction. We tend to think that Paul had a map like that whenever he left. And he knew exactly where he was going to go, and he knew exactly how he was going to get there, and he followed his, his GPS, and uh, he was just going to go to these different spots. But Paul was moving the gospel forward and just stopped where he felt God showed him this is a good place to stop. So as he's completely dependent on the Holy Spirit's leading in his life, as he feels God's peace to say, okay, your time here is done, for whatever reason, he starts heading to the next place. And essentially, they start walking, and they start moving, and they start going. And as they get going, as they get moving, the Holy Spirit says, no, not there. So Paul is in a constant state of communing with God, of prayer, of asking God, give me peace about where you should take this. God, where do you want the gospel to go, God? God, fill me with your spirit so I know where to go. Show me more of yourself so that I know where you want the gospel to go. What people group do you want me and Silas to go to, God? And as he's crying out to God for those answers, God answers. So in that, he knows not to go to certain places. And then the spirit of Jesus shows up and says, no, not there. So, uh, so they're, they're asleep one night, and he has this dream that a man from Macedonia says, come to Macedonia, we need your help. And Paul wakes up and says, well, that's God. So let's go to Macedonia. So there's this like... There's this crazy amount of obedience to the call of God. He knew it was God because he knew what to listen for. He knew it was God because he knew what to hear. It wasn't like he sat with Silas and said, hey, let's go back to the other town. Let's ask those people. Let's tell them what we think God's saying and then ask them to pray about it for us for three months, and then we'll finally make a decision as to where we should go once we have peace and all of our ducks in a row. No, he goes to sleep not knowing where he's going tomorrow, thinking he might know, has a dream and wakes up and says, we're going to Macedonia. That's where God wants us to go. And then they go. So he has this dream and it says it concluded, he concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. But I find it remarkable. This is how, this is how Luke says it. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. When Paul saw the vision, we, we concluded immediately, actually it says, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. It wasn't like, well, if you say so, Paul, I don't know about Macedonia, but hey, if you say so, we'll go. No, it was we sought to go into Macedonia. We wanted to go. We, we made our whole pathway to go into Macedonia because we concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's why we go. That's where the obedience comes in. Do you see what's steering the conversation here? I find it fascinating. Now, I want you to catch the next verse because it's no small feat to get to Macedonia because in verse 11 it says, so setting sail from Troas, let's just stop there. Macedonia wasn't like, hey, let's, let's go to lunch in Warminster. For God to call to Macedonia, it was like, okay, let's go find a ship to sail us there. This wasn't a small thing. This was complete faith in God. They didn't know anybody there. They didn't call ahead, hey, I think my grandma has a sister that lives in Macedonia. Maybe she'd let us crash on her couch. No, it was just, we're going to Macedonia. This is what God said. So listen on, starting again in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage, whatever that city is. I didn't look up the pronunciation. And the following day to Neapolis... And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, remained in this city some days. It's like you're reading his journal, right? So look at where they went. They had these port cities they stopped in along the way. And whenever they got to Philippi, which is the leading city, by the way, the letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians, that's who he's writing to. And they stayed with them 
some days, verse 13, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So a little bit about Lydia here. Lydia is uh, a wealthy woman. Wealthy because in, the, in a Roman colony, he tells us what we need to know in this passage. If we study this and look at it and dissect it, we'll know what we need to know here. She, they're in uh, a Roman colony in the district of Macedonia in the city of Philippi. Roman colony means that it's a Roman uh, culture. Roman culture says that the color purple is a royal color. One of the reasons that it's a royal color is because the dye to make purple is an expensive dye to get to and to come to. So for Lydia to be a distributor and seller of purple goods means that she has an inroad somewhere to get this dye, and that dye is sold to, for royal purposes, it signifies royalty and wealth and honor. So only the wealthiest and most high-honored people in their culture and society are wearing and buying purple. So because of that, she's known as someone in the community, and that's, that it even tells us that, that she was from Thyatira and she was a seller of purple goods. Well, to us, that might not mean anything, that she sells purple things. Have you ever known someone introduce themselves to you that way? I am Adam. Uh, yeah, I'm from Thyatira. I, I sell purple things. Any form of purple things. No, this is, this is said to us because it has significance. It tells us something about her. And so at, that, at this point, when they go down to the river because they're thinking, okay, people will be assembled by the river. It's the Sabbath. We'll have an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Sure enough, there are women gathered there that day, and, uh, and they are able to have a conversation with them. We don't see anywhere that it says that Paul or Silas or Timothy stood up and preached a sermon. We just know that they went down by the riverbanks and started interacting, having conversations with these women. And one of them, the Lord, opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The next verse says, and after she was baptized, a little subtext there, every time, almost every time, uh, that we see someone come to know Jesus in the, in the story of the book of Acts, do you know what immediately follows? baptism. It is the outward display. So they, 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 they have God penetrate their heart. They make the outward display that they belong to God through the waters of baptism. And then her household was baptized as well. Now, this didn't mean that she went home and said, everybody baptized. No, they, the gospel makes its way into Lydia's household. And as people come to know Jesus there, they get baptized as well. Lydia most likely had servants that lived in her home too. And so after this all happens, she immediately, she comes to know Jesus. This is awesome to me. She comes to know Jesus. She gets baptized. And the first thing she wants to do is practice hospitality. The first thing she wants to do is to practice hospitality. She doesn't say, notice what it does say, okay? Let's just look at that. After she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, if this is legit, if you think this is legit, I feel like it is, but if you look at me and you look at my life and you feel like this understanding of Jesus is real and legit, then please come to my house and stay. She didn't say, if this seems real to you, let me go home and clean everything up so that it looks perfect for you. She didn't say, if, uh, if it works for us in our schedule, maybe we can get together for dinner in the next three months. She said, if this faith that you see in me is reflective of the faith you've been teaching as you've been traveling, and you see authentic love for Jesus in me, please, can you just come to my house? I have plenty to eat. I have places for you to sleep. Just stay with me. And at the end, it says... And she prevailed upon us. She must be a pretty good seller of purple goods because she's very persistent. And Luke tells us that. And she 
prevailed on us. Immediately upon meeting Jesus, she uses all that she has for Jesus. She doesn't see any part of her as off limits for the kingdom. She says to herself, I have a place to live. They need a place to stay. I have food to eat. They need to eat. Why don't you come to my house? And that was it. That was all the contributing factors to her practicing hospitality. She met Jesus, and in meeting Jesus, she wanted to use the tools and resources she had to get other people to understand Jesus more. So we fast forward here in verse 16. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. So picture what's happening here. This is a girl who's possessed by a demon. And that demon is using her to tell people's fortunes. She's a fortune teller. And the people who own this slave girl are making money on her telling people's fortunes. And so the way that, the, that, the, that Satan is using this demon in this girl's life against Paul and Silas is that she's coming alongside them and saying, listen to these men. They're going to tell you about Jesus. Might sound on the surface like it's a good thing. Why is that bad that she's proclaiming truth? And sort of, or sort of hearkening it to the people as, as Paul and Silas walk into town. It's because her life doesn't reflect the message of Paul and Silas. So why would Paul and Silas want this person to be this person that announces their arrival? Why would they want someone who, is, who, is, who is, has a demon inside them that is casting uh, fortunes and is telling people's futures through demonic power to be the voice that tells the people, hey... Paul and Silas are here. They're going to tell you about Jesus. Listen to them. So yeah, what what she was saying might have sounded good, but the person that she was, the way she lived, didn't match up with the message. And that's where we pick up Paul here. Uh, Paul, and she kept doing this in verse 18. And she kept doing this. She kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, I wish when I was annoyed with someone, <laughs> wouldn't that be great? Like, I'm just, I'm just here with annoyance. I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of that person. And then that very hour, they just completely different, Right? I'm glad that's not true because people would have spoken many demons out of my life and would continue to. So uh, we see this as a pretty cool thing, right? Paul is using the power of the Holy Spirit and the name and the power and the authority of the person of Jesus to cast out demons. Immediately it comes out. Now, we would see that as a good thing. This was good for her, good for the servant girl, good for the slave because she's no longer confined to the life that the demons want her to live. But it angered the wrong people. Someone owned this slave, and they were very upset. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, Luke gives us his details on purpose. So what happens is they shamed them by stripping them naked in the town square, and then they beat them within an inch of their life. Then they dragged them into the most secure part of the prison, and if that wasn't enough, they sat them down on a dirt floor and locked their feet in stocks so they couldn't get anywhere. So now these two men are in the most secure part of the prison, naked with their feet locked up. That's important to recognize. So they made the wrong people mad, and those people used their political clout and influence to get them to be quiet and get them off of the scene because now this girl had no human value to these owners. She was just a means to making money, and that tells us that when the owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, They didn't recognize that what had just happened to this girl was actually better for her. Do you see yourself in that story sometimes? 
that God flushes sin out and you just get mad at him for it? God removes a stumbling block and we end up just getting frustrated with him for taking something we liked having in our lives away. But that thing wasn't helping us. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. It's important. What were they doing? You heard their situation. They're in the most secure part of the prison. We're going to see in a couple minutes that it's so dark in this part of the prison that the prison guard can't see them. From a little distance away, he can't even see them. So here they are in a pitch dark, in a pitch dark cell on the ground, naked, feet tied in stocks, can't see their hand in front of their face. And what are they doing? They're praying and singing hymns. And what are the other prisoners doing? Listening to them. And suddenly, verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. It was a very dishonorable thing for him to fail at his duties. And in Roman culture, if he didn't fall on his own sword, he was even more of a coward and they would have brutally killed him in front of the people. So he was a man of honor and he realized that what he had done was a dishonorable thing, even if he couldn't explain it. He was about to kill himself. And Paul says this in verse 28, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Think about that. Paul says, listen, don't fall on your sword. You didn't unlock the doors and none of us went anywhere. What are you going to do that for? And the jailer called for some lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Isn't that amazing? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul didn't say, get out of here before the Romans find out what happened here. No, he said in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. Think about this situation, what has just happened. They just got beaten within an inch of their life and imprisoned, and they're in prison singing hymns and praising God and praying. An earthquake happens, and Paul doesn't see that as a means to escape. He sees that as an opportunity for the gospel. And we don't even see him put any clothes on until he gets to this guy's house and gets a bath. And this guy is, is not seen as the enemy. He's seen as someone who needs Jesus. And Paul says, well, we came here to tell people about Jesus. Look, we've got a captive audience. Oh, you're going to throw a softball question like that? How can I be saved? Well, let me tell you. I don't even need clothes on to tell you that. <laughs> Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You take this message to your family and they'll be saved. And the guy says, then come to my house. Let's, I want you to tell my family this message. Come to my house. So when someone again meets Jesus, what's the first thing this guy's response is? Practice hospitality. Why is it such a lost art in our society? Why are we so embarrassed of our space? Why do we think everything has to be perfect before we can have someone over and practice hospitality? Why do we create all these stumbling blocks to it? Because this guy, didn't, he didn't check with his wife first either. Honey, I got two naked guys. They're all bloodied up. They're going to come over for dinner. You okay with that? No, it says they went to the house and he spoke the word. And, and the whole family came to know Christ that same hour. And they were baptized, all, he and his family. Then the guy said, let's eat. And he takes him to his table and they enjoy a meal together. Entire household that had believed in God. Verse 35, but when the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, 
The magistrates have sent you, sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And here's what's happened, okay? What's happened is that somewhere along the line, they, they, whether it was an embarrassment because of the prison break, whether it, was, whether it was the influence of the jailer, we don't really know. But what we do know is the magistrates who locked them up are saying, let them go. It's almost like you get the vibe that they want to be the good guys. We let them go. We, 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 we flogged them. We, we learned them good. And then they're, they're going to go, right? There's something back, there's a backstory there, whether they're embarrassed over the prison break or I don't know. But what happens is the magistrates sent word and they're saying, let those men go. So the jailer, who's the one hosting them now, says, the magistrates are sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. You don't have to hide in my house anymore. They're your freedom in. And Paul says this, typical Paul, Paul fashion here. Paul says, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. He says, you wanted to lock me up publicly? You better release me publicly. You, you, want, to, you want to make a spectacle of me? in town, and you want to make a spectacle of what's happened in my life, and you want to strip me bare in front of town and then lock me up, and then all of a sudden in secret to save face, you want me to just gently leave town? No, if you're saying I did no wrong, and you're saying you had no right to do what you did, then I want you to tell that to the people. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens, talking about Paul and Silas. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. We're sorry, please leave. Then we're going to wrap it up here, verse 40. So they went out of the prison, and what did they do? Look at that. They went out of the prison and what? Visited who? They went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers... They encouraged them and departed. Okay, so to bring it all full circle here, we see a whole lot of motion. We see a whole lot of things happening. We see obedience to the gospel in Paul and Silas. We see that they were, they were in tune with where God wanted them to go, and they went there. They obeyed. They had radical obedience to the gospel. We see that Lydia came to know Christ because of them being obedient, and Lydia's first response is to use what she has to practice hospitality. We see the same thing happen in this miraculous prison break. Paul has so many great stories about how God got him out of sticky situations, right? And this jailer shows hospitality and gives them a place to stay. And then they get released from town and they're saying, listen, you, we have no quarrel with you, but uh, we want you to please leave. You're creating a lot of dissension and problems for us and we're embarrassed, essentially is what they say. And so they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. Where are the people of God gathered now? At Lydia's house. That's where they're at. They're at Lydia's. The people of God, the brothers, they encouraged them and they departed. When they got to visit Lydia, they find that the followers of Jesus, that's where they're at. And they spent time encouraging them. Church, there's a lot here. I don't have like three things to funnel it down to, but one thing that just keeps jumping out at me is going the whole way back to what we talked about all summer long. And it was that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And when we're entrusted with that, we use anything at our disposal to show people the love of Jesus. Nothing is off limits, even if it makes us uncomfortable. But man, when I see Lydia and this jailer come to know Jesus authentically, I see them put zero, zero thought into whether or not this was going to inconvenience them or whether or not someone would walk into Lydia's house and be like, oh, geez, she really makes a lot of money. Look at this nice stuff. I don't even know what to do here. This place is really nice. Or the jailer's house, like, boy, his kids must be something. This place is a mess, right? We don't see them put any thought into those things. They just say, hey, listen, come in here. We have food. We're going to eat. You might as well join us. Hey, you need a place to stay. We have warmth. You might as well stay here. Hey, you need something. We have it. Come over here. 
So I see that whenever the gospel really gets us and infects us, it changes us. It takes away pretense. It takes away fear. It takes away my desire to be liked or noticed. It takes away my fear of judgment. And it takes all of that and sets it aside and says all that is secondary to knowing Jesus and making him known. That's what I see pop out at me most in this. Is that a hard decision was made. And people said, listen, we're not going to let these, these quarrels slow down the gospel. And so as Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas took this message into these towns and into these municipalities, they said, we're, we're clearing a path for the gospel. What a great way for an 18-year-old Timothy to learn how to do ministry while he's walking alongside these guys, while he sees this. Are we those kind of people? Is that us? Could the story of Lydia be our story? When people move into a, into a town, into an area, and they say, I would just want to find fellow like-minded people who love Jesus, will they find your house? Will they find where you live? Will your house be like Lydia's, the center place that whenever the followers of Jesus move into a town and they say, I want to know where the brothers are gathered, Paul and Silas leave prison and knew right away where to go. They knew to go to Lydia's house. Is that your house? God, thank you that we can be the kind of people that practice just reckless generosity, reckless hospitality. And we can do that because we're not, we're not worried about our own reputation because when you say that you, you desire something of us, we will answer with, yes, I will. So God, may we be people of obedience. May we be people that when we're captivated by the truth and reality of your amazing grace, that it changes the way we interact with the world around us. That we don't all have to follow the same formula, but we do follow the same Jesus. And may our prayer be, yes, I will.